Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross. Live, where your hosts Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorne. Thank you for joining us. Uh, before we introduce tonight's guest, I'm going to turn it over to Tamara, who's going to tell you all how you can get a free ebook copy of our latest novel, Darling Girls. Yeah, if you're listening to this anytime before May 31st, 2018, you're eligible to win a free ebook copy of the latest Thorne and Cross novel, Darling Girls. All you have to do is sign up for the newsletter by going to our website at alistaircross.com or tamrathorn.com. And after you sign up, ask two of your friends to do the same. If you're already signed up for the newsletter, you're still eligible. All you have to do is get to get your – I can't read today. All you have to do is get two of your friends – it's one of those days – to sign up as well. Then email our publicist at contact at bamliterature.com. That's contact at B. AMLiterature.com with the email addresses of your friends. If they sign up, you have your choice of an EPUB or Moby copy of Darling Girls. No email addresses will be shared, and the only other thing you'll ever receive is the monthly newsletter. You can find our books by visiting the library page on our website, alistaircross.com or tamarthorn.com. This offer is only valid for EPUB and Moby copies, and the giveaway ends May 31st, 2018. I'm sorry about the bird. All right. The bird is very noisy tonight. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. You know, you know how in the beginning, in the beginning, there was that really long lag. It, it wasn't. Mm-hmm. There is, there is a time lag, but this time it was because I couldn't find the music. <laughs> I was freaking oh. out. <laughs> anyway, anyway. So yeah, we're off to a great start, but mm-hmm. we are joined by someone who is absolutely fantastic. We love this guy. By the age of 30, Christopher Rice published four New York Times best-selling thrillers and was named one of People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive. Hear that? He's a, he's a Lambda Literary Award winner and has been nominated for the Bram Stoker Award for Superior Achievement in a Novel Twice. He is also the co-host and executive producer of The Dinner Party Show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn, a streaming internet comedy variety show which is available 24-7, and if you're listening to this, you should be able to see the link so you can check it out. Uh, Tonight, what we are going to do is we're going to primarily be talking about his latest release, Bone Music, which we're very excited to get into. So, that being said, welcome to the show, Chris. Thank you so much. It's good to be back. We're happy to have you. (laughs) I was here like a week ago, wasn't I? You were. like a week ago, you and... No, I think it was um, It was probably November or December, right? Because uh, my mother and I had just released a book together That was a sequel to Ramsey's The Damned Her novel from many years ago And I think I came on to talk about that Anyway, it's good to be back The point is is it's good to be back And I'll come on as many times as you'll have me Oh, well, right, good And make sure and give your mom (laughs) Yep, and give your mom our best We enjoyed having her, too That was a lot of fun, so Absolutely. Yeah, you guys are great together. All right, so, yeah, it was a lot of fun. 
So, mm-hmm. Kay, as I told you before the show, I have not yet read Bone Music, so the good news about that is, is I won't be giving any spoilers away. However, I fully intend to because I read all of Christopher Rice's books. <laughs> so um, <laughs> what I guess we should start with is why don't you tell our listeners, uh, Chris, what this book is about? Well, I'd like to talk about the moment that inspired it because I, I think that mm-hmm. kind of is what the book is about. I was... Hanging out with a friend, this was many years ago, I want to say it was eight to ten years ago, and he was describing an article that he had read in Fangoria magazine that was giving a plot breakdown of a horror movie that was coming out in a few months, and the scene that he described to me was so disturbing to me that it got stuck in my head, like I couldn't get it out, and um, it was a scene of a woman being tortured. And the implement, the torture implements were like, they just, they pressed some trigger button for me. And I kind of lost my mind over the scene. It was stuck in my head. And I would, I didn't have nightmares about it because I'm not really a nightmare prone person. I have most of my nightmares while I'm awake. Um, but I was driving to a book event in Palm Springs from Los Angeles where I live. And the scene was just circling in my head. And now I hadn't seen the scene. I hadn't even seen any imagery from the movie because I was so freaked out just by this description. And I remembered this story that my aunt had told me about how when she was, well, not when she was young, actually, she was an adult. She watched, um, I think it was a TV movie version of a Thomas Tryon, 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 Tryon right? Thomas Tryon, mm-hmm. the author from the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. 70s and 80s, he had written a book called Harvest Home, or The Dark Secret of Harvest Home, and it was made into a TV movie, and she was so disturbed by the ending that in order to calm herself, she imagined um, a sequel that was never written, in which the person who was wronged the greatest in the original came back and got revenge. And I remember being on that drive and thinking, the only way I'm going to heal myself from the supposed trauma of hearing about this horror movie scene is if I imagine some kind of scenario in which this woman can get away, in which she is not just get away, but in which she Mm -hmm. is strong enough to literally break out of her restraints, overpower her attacker, because it wasn't just about surviving, it was about flipping the power dynamic of that horrible moment where you think somebody's just going to be tortured to death and it's over and there's no hope and there's no escape. It was about turning the tables. And that was how the seed of this novel was born. Now, it took 10 years to get that flash of inspiration into any kind of story that was going to make sense. And 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 the the, the journey there was like... I never put it at the front burner. Like, I was always working on something uh-huh. else, but it was right. my novel. And the, and the reason I kept getting stuck, the reason it wouldn't go on the front burner, was that it kept involving aliens. And I was like, what? And I would talk about it with people, <laughs> and I would say, well, like, I'm, I was envisioning it as a collision of tropes in my head. And so I was like, what could... Like you've got your your sort of, not a Jason Voorhees type serial killer, not a superpower, but like a jigsaw type serial killer, right? You've got him and what what's the right. trope that could, could make him mess his pants? And I was like, alien life, you know? And, and I saw the woman sliding out from the restraints because she had Lovecraftian tentacles and all this sort of stuff. Um, but none of that was working because every, every time I tried to follow that um, that idea, I ended up on a friggin' spaceship. And I was like, how do I... <laughs> <laughs> this story off this spaceship, it was just terrible. 
So <laughs> a couple of years later, I sat down with uh, an editor I was working with in Amazon Publishing at the time, and I said, look, you know, what, what is – what's working for you guys? What types of books are really selling? And they said, well, anything with a strong female heroine and a serial killer. And I said, well, it just so happens I've got this idea, but it's got aliens in it. And she said, okay, take out the aliens and we're good. <laughs> and I said, well, then where does her power come from if the woman's not an alien? And then it was, I was my best friend, Eric Shaw Quinn, who's also a very talented writer. He was sitting um, at the table with me. And I think he might've been the one that said, what about a drug? What if it's a drug? And mm. I, you know, and then the idea totally like it was instantaneous. It grew legs. It suddenly made uh. sense. There was a world that went with it, and it didn't involve a spaceship and a bunch of friggin' aliens. So I mean, <laughs> that's the long road, long answer to that question. That's sort of where the idea came from. But the book is, at its core, a very satisfying revenge fantasy for those of us who have seen that scene a thousand times of the woman and mm-hmm. the man getting it from the remorseless psychopath and you just you reach a point I think as a spectator and as an audience member where you're like I'm sick of this psychopath's dry humor I don't think he's right about everything I want to see him get his ass kicked and that's what bone music is about oh I do have it I'm going to have to open that up tonight (laughs) (laughs) well thank you great yeah boy yeah that's oh you recommended Credit. I liked it, it quite yeah. a bit. Yeah, yeah. And this, you, you meant Harvest Home, that was fantastic. That, for, especially for a Yeah, yeah, movie. that's why. Yeah. Yeah, the, yeah, the book was Betty a Davis is too. in it, right? Is that, am I right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I haven't seen it in a million years, but that was one of my early influences. It was like, oh, Stephen King must have read this before he uh, really got going. The, you know, the. Children of the Corn stuff and all that stuff. Oh yeah, yeah. Fertility things. It was great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah I, I think it's it. interesting how you said that you were struggling with it, and as soon as you got it, you got the the, the idea for the drug or the you know the whole thing kind of fell into place, and then it was complete with a, a world. And isn't it interesting how that happens? Do you have because it does happen? It's like if you don't even sometimes yeah. if you don't even have the characters' names right, you can't go forward, and it sounds really really silly to people who don't write, but writers do understand it. Do you have any theories on why that is? Well, you know, it reminds me of a a theater director I knew when I was in high school. He was a high school theater director. He also directed community theater, but his, they were a couple, there were two gay guys, which at the time they were like the two gay guys I knew. Um, And (laughs) the younger one was the set designer and he was the perfectionist and he would paint into the wings. He made a point. He would always paint into the wings, and he said, I want the actors to be in the world before they step on stage so that there's not this line. And I think we do that for ourselves as authors. It's it's always a a unique and strange, and it can sound superficial and petty from the outside, combination of things that get us into the world of the book. But, I mean, we can't wait forever to start writing, but there are certain moments, like you said, a character's name – um, for me, it's usually about right-sizing the plot. Like, usually for me, the initial plot is way too complicated. It's stretched way too thin. It's being pulled <laughs> in too many different directions. And if I just cut a couple weights loose, it contracts to the right size, if that metaphor even works. So I think that's what it's about. Because it's like nobody's going to spend more time in it than we are. So we have to be in the right costume. We have to be in character. Mm-hmm. 
Right, absolutely. Was, I totally, I we totally get it. It's, but yeah, it, it is, it is kind of strange yeah. when trying to explain that. It's, it's an interesting thing. I don't know if it's just a psychological kind of thing that everything yeah. falls into place, and you're like, oh, I've, I've got it, or, or what it is. I have no idea, but it, but it is fascinating. It's, it's, you, you just, you have to have all the, yeah. one idea, feel less one, is more. one right thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. Now you mentioned you had um, a strong, you have a strong female heroine, which um, I think is really popular right now. I think people really love that, and you know, with good reason. It's 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 great. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your heroine in Bone Music? What's her name? What does she do? What's she like? Well, she um, she's got a nickname, which has been with her her whole life. She has a tragic past. Her when she was a baby. Her mother was driving through the Appalachian Mountains. She just left her father, which was a sort of regular occurrence. They had a bad marriage. And she had the baby in a car seat in the back seat, and she uh, pulls over because she gets a flat tire in the rain, and she is abducted by uh, man and wife serial killers. And they, uh, she's what they call an impulse kill. She wasn't planned. These serial killers, the Bannings, mostly track and stalk their victims, and they go after backpackers and road trippers and people going through this stretch of Georgia and Tennessee. And uh, she is snatched in an instant, and they uh, stun gun her before they realize there's a baby in the backseat. And so they're left with the decision of we either kill the baby or we leave it by the side of the road, along with all the forensic evidence that might entail. And so they take the baby and decide to raise it as their own. And so for the first seven years of her life, Charlotte Rowe doesn't know that her real mother's been murdered, and she doesn't know that these kindly farmers who she believes are her parents are, in fact, serial killers and rapists. And she uh, is gradually and subtly being groomed to be a killer like they are. They're sort of indoctrinating to her, her to their way of thinking. They're very convinced of the righteousness of, of what they do. And as the series goes on, I'm working on the sequel right now, we're given more glimpses into their pathology, which is the the wife basically does the murdering after the husband does the raping. They keep the woman for three days, and the <laughs> wife is totally convinced that this is what makes their marriage great, that she allows her husband to <laughs> indulge his worst appetites, and then she cleans up the mess, and they have the world. So they're really sick. Oh, like, they're really sick. Yeah. And they're, but they're they're gradually indoctrinating her into this way of thinking that, that not all lives have equal value, that um, they're, and when she's a little girl, they're basically beginning to teach her to kill animals without remorse. And before they get going, she's rescued. Um, and she is, so that background basically from then on introduces this question in her life that pretty much everyone who comes into contact with her has, which is how can you spend seven years being raised by serial killers and not be touched by their evil in some fundamental way? And the first person who really sort of wrestles with that idea is her birth father, who gets custody of her after her rescue initially, and he turns her into a cash cow. He writes, a, commissions a book based on her life that's all BS. He trots her out from a young age to all these public speaking appearances. He also um, uh, sells the rights to her life and the book he wrote to horror movie producers who they say they're going to make a biopic, but really they end up making this torture porn series that goes on and on. And the movies basically imply that she uh, was 
part of the murders on the farm, which is absurd because she, she was seven years mm-hmm. old. But what she was doing on the farm, what her her dark mother, as we call her in the series, uh, was was teaching her to do was they were collecting all the personal belongings of their victims and they were putting them in an incinerator that was on the property and they were teaching her to press the button. But what they told her initially is that these were from people who would come at night to, you know, sneak around the farm and steal things and that they dropped their personal belongings and their wallets and their watches and all that sort of stuff. So Burning Girl becomes her nickname in the press and it follows her around for the rest of her life. She um, eventually... Uh, she won't, when she hits her teenage years, she won't play her father's game anymore. She won't do the appearances. She turns against him on stage, and it gets a lot of news coverage because she realizes what's, what's being done. And so she goes to yeah. live with her her grandmother in this beautiful, fictional central California town that I made up. It's sort of like a hodgepodge of other towns and areas close to Big Sur. It's called Altamira. And all of this is the prologue. <laughs> this is not even... <laughs> Where the book begins. This is her backstory. So, you know, fascinating. she's living in isolation, just to speed it up a little bit. She's living in isolation in Arizona. She sued her father for some of the money that he owes her from all he made off of her. And uh, she's got an assumed name now, her her new name, Charlotte Rowe. And uh, she meets this very handsome, very intelligent psychiatrist who seems to be hanging out in this sort of AA recovery center where she goes because her grandmother was sober and used to take her to open AA meetings and all that sort of stuff. She's hanging out, and he befriends her, and he says, you know, talk to me, and she opens up to him, and he says, well, you know, her anxiety is uh, reaching a peak because the local movie house in her town has decided coincidentally to do a screening of the movies that are based on, loosely based on what happened to her in her father's book. And uh, he says, why don't you try this? I know you don't like medication. Why don't you try this drug? And uh, he gives her this pill. He tells her to take it right away because it's slow acting and it's for her anxiety and it should help her sleep, but it's timed release. And that's really where the book begins. And I don't want to give away too much else because it sort of takes <laughs> off from there. There's a, there's a big reversal that comes soon after. And you realize this drug is not just for anxiety. <laughs> wow. It sounds fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it really the, does. The, um, it does. The, the the psychology of the the heroine who who will follow through future books, right? That's oh, I could wallow in that all day. That's just fascinating. Well, well, thank you. You know, I thought I, I thought it was interesting because she is someone who has been. I mean, you can call what she's been through trauma, but she's not endured <laughs> physical trauma herself, and so she has this keen sense of injustice and an outrage that's almost like a spectator when it comes to seeing horrible things done to women and men as well, mm-hmm. because the bannings do actually kill a man at one point during their, their career as serial killers. And, but there's a sense that the fight has not been, if you'll forgive the expression, beaten out of her. So she's got a lot <laughs> of fight in her and she's got a lot of anger, but she's got this, she's been implicated in these horrible crimes that she really wasn't a part of. And, you know, lost her own mother to these people. So, yeah. So it's very much, it is, uh, she is a character built out of th- part- participating in, but also trying to take a step back from what I call dateline culture, where we, we look really closely at these true crime cases, and a lot of us reach really harsh and sometimes public judgments about the participants or their guilt or their lack thereof. 
and mm-hmm. you know, coming up with a character who is in some sense victimized by that because her entire identity has been kind of built for her by people online obsessing about the crimes committed by the Bannings, the serial killers who abducted her. So mm-hmm. she she lives in this kind of fog, and she's in this, and so the arc of the series and and what she's able to discover once she discovers what this drug can really do is about her finding her own way and her own identity. And I think, for me, that was a very compelling concept and a universal concept. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Fantastic. Now, yeah. and, just, and just as fascinating, the Bannings, the serial killer uh, couple who raises her, um, what can you tell us about them and their psychoses? Well, you know, I think the um, when they're arrested – and uh, Charlotte, her name is Trina at the time, Trina Pierce, when she's taken away from them, the husband kills himself in jail. Uh, but the wife lives, and she's not sentenced to death. And the implication is that even though she was guilty of the, the murders, that her husband didn't actually murder anyone, he did the raping, which was you know hideous, but mm-hmm. she actually murdered them. She, her defense... Um, because she is a woman, kind of gets her off. Not it doesn't get her off. It ends her up with yeah. life in prison. But she's not, you know. Um, so she is uh, a master manipulator, and she is sort of, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily want to talk about the story in kind of rigid political terms. But she, if there is an anti-feminist in the book, it's her because her entire life's work is basically you have to not only stand by your man, you have to feed your man's darkest appetites for your marriage to thrive. Uh-huh. That's really a woman's role. And Char- Charlotte, the woman she grows up to be, could not be any more different than that, and she's always going to sort of fight that. And Abigail Banning is still alive and is still going to try to play a role in Charlotte's life because deep down, fundamentally, she really does believe that Charlotte is her daughter, that, that she she yeah. gave Charlotte more than anyone else ever could. And, and there are psychos and stalkers out there who believe the same thing. And she has actually made contact with many of them. So, you know, I think I wanted to do – I didn't necessarily want to do the same serial killer we have seen over and over and over again. I'm not, I'm not necessarily convinced that the most popular depiction of a male serial killer is this sort of Freudian riddle with, you know, deep mommy issues – I don't know if that's the only type of serial killer out there. And I think that a concept that I play with in the book that I've been wanting to address for a long time, and I don't necessarily have hard data or science to back it up, is what if there's a class of serial killer out there that we don't even really know about? Because they don't leave bodies by the side of the road. They're not sloppy. They don't escalate to the point where they're getting really messy in their technique. They're not interested in communicating with the police. They're just interested in killing over and over again really effectively, and they're very good at covering up their crimes, and we see their ghostly imprint in the number of missing persons cases that go unsolved every year, but we don't necessarily know they're there. And as Charlotte sort of develops a mission over the course of the series, that idea is something she pursues. And so I think it allows for, in, in terms of the fiction of the book, a little bit of exploration of what that there might be some terrible variety to the minds of serial killers. You know, like ultimately we only know about the ones we catch. Right. 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 And there's apparently a large percentage that we don't. 
Well, you're right. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're we're doing this interview uh, the day after the Golden State Killer was uh, catched, which is great. I'm very glad that he was caught. But he got away with that for a very long time, and it was really science that brought him down eventually. It was yeah. DNA, um, you know, and, and DNA has gotten a lot better than it was, you know, just 20 years ago or a little more when we were dealing with DNA around the OJ case. It's, it's, the science uh-huh. has improved, and, but it's still, it's still not perfect. And so I think it's wonderful for the, for the relatives of the victims, but it took a long time to catch him. And I, I think, you know, it's important to remember that. I think, you know, in talking some, the book really has a sci-fi concept. So the, the amount of real-world research that I did was limited to some specific areas that I wanted to feel grounded, but there's no pill that exists like this anywhere in the world. So I wasn't going to get bogged down in a lot of biology that, that, you know, acting like it could be real because I don't know if it can be or not. It's a, it's a completely over the top conceit. Um, That said, I did talk to some members of the FBI and they said, one of the reasons we are not, you know, there just aren't that many serial killers that we know about. And so the Behavioral Science Unit mobilizes when there is one, but Hollywood has given everyone a distorted impression that, you know, their chances of being murdered by a serial killer at a rest stop are one in five. You know, it's something like that. And it's just, it really apparently to their eyes isn't true. So I think as a writer, if you're going to play with the concept, you have to sort of account for that fact. But I have always been legitimately afraid that we only see what's on the surface, you know, like we don't see right. the sharks gliding right. way down in the deep. Yeah. Right, exactly. That's a very good point. Um, so did you did – you, serial killers are always really fascinating subjects. Um, did you – were there any particular uh, serial killers or, or specifically serial killer couples that you uh, researched? I, you know, I didn't. I I can't say I researched any specifically, but I have read so much about serial killers over the years that if I probably looked back, I would I would find some similarities. But I think the idea of a woman killing on behalf of her man was maybe something that felt more of a fictional creation to me when it, when I actually look at the serial killer case studies. I mean, the most famous female serial killer is probably Eileen Warnos who um, has a particular story. I mean, she was a sort of uh, a sex worker who was violently abused by clients, and she was the, 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 her story was explored in the movie Monster with Charlize Theron. Like, she's a, she's a very specific character, a case study, if you will, of this mm-hmm. kind of violence and this kind of hate. Um, Abigail is different from her. You know, Abigail is almost the traditional gone to the bowels of hell, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. And <laughs> right. so I, you know, and I think, you know, some of, some of what irritates me about the science behind this is that if you go back and you look at the mind hunter era where, you know, inspired the area that's sort of covered in part by the Netflix show, which I have to admit, I haven't, I've only seen some of a lot of the science around the psychology around serial killers at the time was really narrow, shallow, and prejudiced. Against, it was sort of determined by common societal prejudices. Like if they saw that, that a serial killer had consumed pornography, because there was this collective shame around pornography at the time, and this, it, leading to this belief that a lot of people couldn't possibly be watching porn, 
they would mm-hmm. they would right. present that as a as a sort of factor in their in their psychopathology. And now you look at that and you think, wait a minute, given all the people that we now know watch porn or look at dirty pictures right. on Tumblr, it's very hard to say that that's an origin point of serial killer <laughs> violence. You know, we would just, yeah, you I know. Remember, I remember when that was all the craze, it was, there were posters, pornography kills, all kinds of, they were putting all this emphasis on it. And I believe, I'm not sure, don't quote me on this, but I, I believe it had a lot to do with uh, Ted Bundy, I think, said. Yes, it You know, did. that's how it started for him started looking at, at porn and it escalated from there and I and I don't really know what that means it escalated from there I, I, yeah. I to me it's just, well it, I, <laughs> you look at it and you're done I don't really know <laughs> uh, you know, it means he was lying and he was on his <laughs> practically on his deathbed and wanted to sound like a victim and blame right. somebody I remember that interview I remember watching it with my mother yeah. and we were yeah. I was a kid and we were just outraged I mean I was sitting with my mother who had written sadomasochistic erotica with the Sleeping Beauty series. She'd never murdered anyone. It was absurd. You know, right. like I think right. it's a fascinating conversation because it makes an easy target and it and it allows people who feel a great sense of fear around the issue and a great sense of confusion and mistrust around how quickly some humans can tilt towards violence. It gives them an easy target. I mean, I was watching some clips online of interviewers trying to ask gotcha questions of of makers of violent films about whether or not they think that their, you know, their work contributes to violence. And none of them were saying they were getting offended and they were walking off or they were whatever, but none of them were saying what I think you need to say, which is that that's just bunk science. You have to, you have to right. include all the relevant data in your data set if you're actually going to do that. So, for instance, if you say, okay, we're going to take the four most recent mass shooters and we're going to determine – that they routinely enjoyed uh, extremely violent entertainment in films, be it video games, movies, or books. Okay, so we've identified that as a commonality between these four mass shooters. Okay, then we have to go take the millions and millions of people who have also consistently enjoyed violent video games, entertainment, and books, and we have to see if they are guilty of a mass shooting. Okay, they're not. So how do we explain there's no there's then no commonality. We then have to go back to the original four examples and say, well, we've ruled that out as a unifying factor because it's also present in these million people who did not go on to commit violent acts. I mean, it's just it's right. insane, right. and I think it, it gives people an easy talking point, and it also, in their minds, makes this issue easier to understand, but it's also, I think it leads to a certain kind of moral superiority on their part. It's their way of saying, Oh, I couldn't. I am. I stand apart from this. This, you know, scuzzy entertainment. I'm better than this. See, I recognize that it's contributing to all these societal ills. It's just nonsense. And I think Ted Bundy was just lying. I think he was just lying, and I think he was manipulating the public. And I think, you know, like I have friends who work in the adult entertainment industry. I think we're getting, thanks to Stormy Daniels, we're getting closer to the mainstreaming of this as just another form of entertainment, as just another business than we ever would be. So when you go back and you read serial killer psychological profiles from the 60s that have this sort of haughty, anyone who has an intense interest in sex is likely to kill someone. It's just, it, it clearly gets my heat up as, opposed right. by, as demonstrated by the fact that I've been yeah. talking about it for 10 minutes. <laughs> no, no, it's interesting. It's fascinating because because I, I agree yeah. 100%. I, I remember, you know, I remember seeing that interview with Ted Bundy and thinking, how are those two things related? How, how, 
you know, it was a long time ago. I was pretty sure it was Ted Bundy, and I, but I remember hearing that, and and there was this big blow up of you know, oh, you know, uh, porn and murder, porn and violence, porn and you know, all kinds of things, and I just I could never in in my own mind quite make that connection. I, I couldn't see how it could become that, and I never really bought yeah. into it. But I think a lot of people did, and I think that's a bad thing because once again, it's just putting a, another negative um, uh, facet onto something that's. Mm-hmm. In my opinion, perfectly natural. Of course, you know. I yes. Mean, it, it, <laughs> right. It's, it's not, a, not only yeah. perfectly natural, but it's if it's not the source of the problem, and you're spending all your time and energy attacking it, you aren't going after the thing that's really the source of the problem. No. I mean, that's the thing. I, I think we. It, it, I think there are neurological underpinnings to this that no, we haven't really touched yet because they don't make for sexy print copy and. Their science is complex, I, but I think you know there there just isn't an easy answer for where this comes from, and the idea that something can make you into a serial killer. I just I, it's a, it's a problematic comparison fundamentally, but it's the, it's the same idea around sexual identity. I don't believe anything made me into a homosexual. I believe the genetic predisposition was there, and there were certain societal yeah. factors in my life that maybe brought it out sooner than it would have come out in someone else. But you know, it, mm-hmm. it turns into a chicken versus the egg discussion, you know. Yeah. People will say, oh, the mother, you know, an, an overbearing mother or a really attentive mother made you gay. And it's like, or the attentive mother gravitated uh, towards you because you had these qualities in you that were more sensitive than her other boys. It's just you can't prove mm-hmm. that stuff. It's just a circular discussion. And I think when we, if we really care about these issues, like where this violence comes from, we need to actually be looking at the da- where the data and the science leads us, you know. And it's, it's, exactly. uh, it's not easy. No. Absolutely, and see, this is why it's this perfect. is why we adore you, and this is why I I, I follow your tweets on Twitter. <laughs> Thank you, we both do. Thank yeah. you very much. Um, I I need to take one second and just remind everybody that you're listening to Thorn and Cross Haunted Nights Live. We're your hosts, Alistair Cross and Tamara Thorn. We are here with Christopher Rice, New York Times best-selling author. Uh, his latest book, Bone Music, is out now. Be sure and get a copy of it. Uh, you can learn more about what we do at our websites, alistaircross.com and tamarthorne.com. You can visit our mutual blog at thorneandcross.wordpress.com, or if you tweet, our handles are at crossalister and at tamarthorne. Uh, you can also visit us on Facebook at our Haunted Nights Live page. For more information on the show, you can visit Authors on the Air on Facebook, Twitter, and at authorsontheair.com. If you're listening online, please click the follow button. This is a broadcast of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network LLC. And remember, if you want a free ebook copy of our latest novel, Darling Girls, uh, just get two of your friends to sign up uh, for our newsletter by going to our websites and email the information to our publicist at contact at bamliterature.com. All right, uh, back to Christopher Rice and Bone Music. Um, one of the first things that caught my eye about, that, that catches my eye about this book um, is the title uh it's it's oddly vague and specific at the same time and i'm very Mm -hmm. curious about how that title came to be and what it means yeah well the title came out of the of the science fiction aspect of the book which is bone music is charlotte's description for what she literally begins to feel when the drug takes effect the drug only kicks into effectiveness when she is terrified. So she can take it and it can sit dormant in her system, but at the first moment someone literally scares the crap out of her, she is triggered, as she calls it, and her super strength 
kicked into effect, and it lasts for three hours, which is her trigger window. And the bone, but the bone music is the sign that it's working. And when she feels it for the first time, she's got no idea what it is or why it's happening, and she comes up with her. Uh, she was. The book was not originally going to be called Bone Music. It was going to be called Burning Girl. Um, but another, another novelist was coming out with a book called Burning Girl, which people thought was going to be kind of a big deal. And so my publisher asked uh-huh. if I'd be open to changing it. And uh, I was. And so the series yeah. is now called the Burning Girl series, and Bone Music was the great um, alternative, I thought. And what it's given way to, which I, I, I like, is titles that sort of blend a, a, a body substance or a body word with uh, a, a kind of more ethereal thing. So Bone Music is going to mm-hmm. be followed up by Blood Echo next year. I have to give props to my friend Liz right. Berry for coming up with that title. I was struggling with Blood This, Blood That, Blood That. She came <laughs> up with Blood Echo. And, uh, you know, so that that sort of that's where the the idea comes from. But, of course, because I do have a past in romance, or I've published some romance titles, people automatically assumed I meant, is it, you know, they asked me, is it music that you bone to? And I was like, no, oh, you're seven. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Well, uh-huh. for the record, I think, for the record, I think bone music is a, 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 Really great title, um, and I, I would yeah, take that like over it. the other one. That's it's a good it's a good one because it makes you kind of stop and go, huh? You know, and yeah. it's a great cover. Thank you. Actually, by the way, it's, 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 a, it's yeah. a great cover. Alistair, yeah. Alistair and I rarely are over ten years old, and we neither one of us thought of bone music as something. Like I know. I didn't, didn't <laughs> so, yeah. 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 I, it was yeah. it was some it was grown ups who, you know, had this, you know, yeah. reaction <laughs> when they saw it for the first time. So yeah. That was boner <laughs> music, I could see it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've matured. Oh. Yeah, we're sli- we're slipping. We're slipping. Yeah. Oh, when you yeah. when you started this when all the when all the components uh came together and you decided, Okay, I've got it, I know I know how this is going to go, um, and you sat down and started writing it. How how long was it? How long did it take you? And what what are some of the maybe I don't know obstacles that you uh, bumped into along the way? You know, I really didn't bump into a lot of obstacles. I I, I have to say I um, I am a kind of genre mess, if you will. Like I <laughs> I blur the lines between genres a lot, and I will say yeah. openly that a lot of the writing of Bone Music was influenced by romantic suspense books that I had discovered recently and quite enjoyed. I quite enjoyed Nora Roberts' big suspenseful novels, and and the the thing that I liked about them most were the home fronts that she developed for her heroines, and I very much wanted Charlotte to have that. I knew... When we meet her, she's living in isolation, and it's a it's a sort of bleak. Uh, it's not an abandoned house, but it's on an abandoned property, and it's out in the middle of Arizona, and there's snakes and cacti, and you know it's pretty in its own right. But I wanted her to have a town, a hometown, to sort of go to, which is a kind of a universal, not a universal theme, but it's a big trope in romance and romantic suspense, but in a lot of books. But there's a sense that. There are a certain set of guarantees that some romance novels are going to give you, like a happy ending, and that certain people are going to be safe. Yeah. And so I blended some of those guarantees with the scarier aspects of this book. And I, it really, for me, it really clicked, as a reader at least. I liked the way they came together, and I liked that 
you know, they called it, I have some readers I know have called it her superhero, her Scooby gang that she falls in <laughs> when she goes back home. That was all important to me. And I think, you know, I, it really, it made the book flow because when you have characters mm-hmm. that you love like that, you can just kind of let them talk to each other in certain scenes. And uh, her uncle, Marty, who's not really her uncle, but her grandmother's, her deceased grandmother's ex-boyfriend, who's really protective of her, he became this sort of, um, I don't know, not, not bedrock of the book, but kind of something that anchored it and anchored her life and her story. And I think in books like this where characters are really putting their they're, they're putting themselves out on a limb. They have to have an entertaining but also fresh-feeling sidekick who they bounce ideas off of, but it's also kind of a foil for them and also calls them on their bullshit. And Charlie's got a lot of those. And I, there's a little bit of a romance in it as well. And there were just there were a lot. I am most energized and compelled when there's a fusion of those elements. It can frustrate reviewers and it can frustrate readers who want books to fit in a specific box, but the response to bone music so far has been really positive. So I, I'm encouraged by that, but I did have anxiety on the eve of publishing. I thought, um, maybe there's going to be too much romance for this group. Maybe this killer is going to be too scary for this group. And then I, so I decided to just stop thinking in terms of groups. <laughs> that was the only thing I could and that's, do. And, and that's, that's the best that's thing to do because I, we we all know that um, you know publishers and reviewers and things like this are notoriously oh well you know you have to fit into a certain box you have to be a specific genre, and yet amazingly there are many 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 writers out there who really do blur the genre lines and it yeah. doesn't I've never heard any, I've never heard anybody say well I think somebody would would like my you know I think people would like my books more if if I was you know more clear cut in fact I think it's the opposite and I don't really know why. That hasn't caught on, but in my observation, I think people enjoy it because it's less predictable. I agree. A lot I of think. People, yeah. Go ahead. Uh, oh, oh, I was just going to say a lot of people prefer predictable. I think that's the problem. I think that's yeah, definitely. Maybe. I think, I and don't. that can definitely <laughs> apply to the, the concept yeah. of a, a series. They want the same thing over and over mm-hmm. again, only different. I yeah. think, though, when yeah. you look at the long arc of people's careers. It is interesting because I think the writers who really do break out huge, um, like mm-hmm. Stephen King, you know, like my mother, like um, a couple other writers I could mention, they aren't really in deep genre cubbyholes. Like everybody talks about the mystery right. that Stephen King is one of the most successful authors in the world, but horror as a genre in publishing doesn't sell as well as romance and to some extent not even as well as mysteries and thrillers do. Why is that? Well, Stephen yeah. King does not just write what could be called horror. Like you've got no. with The Shining, you've got The Green Mile and The Shawshank Redemption. You've got this range and this versatility in there that has made his career what it is. And I think Baum had a similar track with a lot of her books. And I think that mm-hmm. it's, if you look at it, you know, Chuck Wendig is a great Twitter presence. I haven't had a chance to read any of his books, but I love his Twitter. I don't know if you guys are familiar with him. He's a sci-fi author. And yeah, I follow him on well. Twitter too. Yeah. Yeah, he's wonderful, but he said recently, the books that we remember are the ones that make a mess. They really are. They're the ones that break rules and stomp around in different battlegrounds, and they do, you know, and I think in the beginning, Stephen King was making that kind of mess because he was writing those scary stories with a greater degree of emotional detail and going deeper into characters probably than anybody had before him. I mean, there were good horror writers like Richard Matheson, but Richard Matheson is really lean. He was really yeah. 
you know, much more, you know, but Stephen King gave you these big, like, ice cream scoops full of, of world and yeah. character and all that, all that stuff. So, I don't know. I, I think yeah. that you do, it, you're, you know, it is what, what you said, Alistair, it's true, that the publishing professionals, particularly if you are either starting out or rebuilding your career, they want to be able to put you in a box because I think there are genre reviewers out there, particularly on the Internet, bloggers, bookstagrammers like that, who can be very specific in their tastes. And so they're thinking in terms of a marketing plan. But, you know, the, the weird thing is how you market a book and what's actually in it can often diverge. You know, like books can be marketed right. as, as being more scary than they really are or less scary than they are. Yeah. Now, if you were to, if you had to choose a genre, whether it be, you know, horror, romance, whatever, and you have to pick one, what would you say you are at heart? Oh, a thriller writer. I would pick thrillers because thrillers, uh, you know, a sense of almost constant suspense unites mm-hmm. pretty much everything I've written, and even to some extent the romances that I wrote for A Thousand and One Dark Nights, while nobody dies or horribly or there are no murders in them really, <laughs> They uh-huh. they are there. There is a mystery at their core, and there's a sense that the, the, there's a sense that the suspense will not end until the mystery is resolved. Um, they're yeah. not messianic journeys, you know. They're not. They're they're different. They're, right. they're a question is introduced on page one, and it will not be answered really until close to the end, and you will not feel a sense of satisfaction until it is. And I think that's the hallmark of a thriller. And I like the term thriller because it gets you past a lot of the restrictions. A thriller can take place in the suburbs. It can take place in the Himalayas. It can, you know, it can, it, it's all about the sort of constant expectation of it being a roller coaster ride, if you will. And I think yeah. that's definitely right. it. All right. I, I was going to mention maybe you just created a new genre, Himalayan thriller. A Himalayan thriller. Right? <laughs> <laughs> thriller. Right. I, me and the Himalayas would be thrilling for people to watch. I can tell you that much. I love oh, it. I, about it. Right, um, I have, I have uh, one more question for you about bone music, and then I want to talk a little bit about what you've got coming up. Um, but uh, first, uh, bone music. What What would you say if I asked you, what element of this book are you the most pleased with, or what about this book makes you the happiest? I think with a lot of books, I've had big ideas, and then when I get to that point in the book, I'll either water it down or I'll dial it back or I'll say, no, that's too much. And I think with Bone Music, I got to those big moments that I had daydreamed about and outlined and I didn't back off and I think the result is that it really is the book that I wanted it to be it's not the book an editor wanted it to be or it wasn't a book written out of the pressure of a dozen different bad reviews I was remembering of older books it really was you know I like to say that in my career every book I've written has been an attempt to try to get back to that sense of innocence and freedom and that sense of play that defined the first time I ever sat down to write something novel length before a single reviewer was in my head before I had any sense of how publishing really worked you know Uh, and I think I got as close to it as I have ever been again with phone music wonderful very cool it really is all right Mm -hmm. so what is on the horizon for Christopher Rice and um, I think actually let's start this out with um 
Okay, so we had you on a few months ago with, with your mom, who, of course, is Anne Rice, and uh, for Ramses the Damned, uh, The Passion of Cleopatra. Fantastic mm-hmm. book, uh, fantastic blend of your voices, uh, very impressive. So I guess uh, I have to ask, do you have any plans, any future plans for uh, collaborating with your mom again? Well, I'll tell you the most important thing we're collaborating on right now is the Vampire Chronicles television series, and unfortunately it is the thing about which I am allowed to say the least at the present time. (laughs) We have been working for a year with Paramount Television and Anonymous Content. They are responsible for TV shows like The Alienist and 13 Reasons Why, which has been one of the top shows on Netflix this past year. And they're a really great company, and we're working with some wonderful people, and I'm confident we're going to have some things to announce very soon. And until then, I cannot say another word. But uh, So we work on that almost (laughs) daily. And that is, you know, I've been tasked with bringing her vision to the screen, the small screen. And what I can say is that we're still very much doing the type of TV show that she announced on her Facebook page a year ago that she wanted to do, which is a long-form, lush historical series focused on the life of the vampire Lestat from beginning with his young mortal boyhood in France and continuing on through um, the centuries of life he's had since then. So I think everyone who has been monitoring that announcement or tracking that will be very pleased by what we are continuing to do. And And I do believe... I'm very sure that by the end of May we will have something very exciting to announce, but as, as of this current time, mm. I can say no further. But, yeah, we work together all the time, and uh, we may write another Mummy book together. That was a lot of fun. Oh, how fun. Very cool. I can't wait for this series well, when you, when you, and another book. Yeah, when you do, when you do we're, we're happy to have you guys back. I, I'm, I'm really interested in the uh, Vampire Chronicles thing that's coming up. That's really cool. Yeah. That's very cool. Sounds I, great. I, I think that interview with the vampires one of the you know one of the things i grew up on it yeah it shaped me so it's very exciting it's oh very yeah cool. Very cool. wonderful wonderful well i'll hopefully have more and, to say uh, very soon oh yeah all right and what about what about just uh um y- your own work what are you do you have any upcoming news or anything you're working on right now Oh, yeah. In about a few days, I will be turning in the sequel to Bone Music, which is called Blood Echo, and it picks up right where the last one left off and continues the adventures of Charlotte, Luke, and Marty and uh, Graydon Pharmaceuticals and all the sort of goodies and baddies from the last book. I mean, it's, it's you know, the world continues. So, uh, And that will be out um, February of next year. Oh, great. Very nice. Are there, you back. Do you have any books? Yeah, we do always, of course, always. You, um, I'm curious. Do you you have a lot of books? You you started at a very young age. Um, do you have any books in your kind of mental uh, backlog that you're like? And this kind of sounds like it kind of happened with with bone music. But are, are there any other bone musics in in your mind that you're like, one day, I'm gonna write this? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, there are tons. I'm never at a loss for what to write. Next, I've always got a folder full of ideas. You know, I can't get through an episode of Dateline without coming up with an idea how I really wanted to work <laughs> right. it out or how I think it should have yeah. worked out. You know, I, I, I think I, I never, but I do have big books. I, I'll tell you, I'll put it this way. I think I have books that I think, you know, I'll write that when 
I'm completely financially settled, and I have no concern. I don't have to worry at all about how a book's going to sell or how it's going to be perceived. That'll be my dream. And you know, you never. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that's BS. Like you're just. I'm making that up because I know <laughs> the book's going to be a challenge and it's daunting and all that sort of stuff. But I have a lot of those books, a lot of them, you know. And I think that they are um, either not ready to be born. And that's just the line mm-hmm. I feed myself that's about keeping them in their little eggs until it's time for them to hatch. Or sure. they're, you know, and that sometimes means they're waiting for the kind of flash of inspiration that I got during that lunch in Seattle with my editor and Eric Jarquin. Yeah. Right. Makes total right. sense. Um, another thing that I would like to ask you about, we can't possibly go throughout the show without asking about it, is this uh, People Magazine's Sexiest Men Alive. <laughs> I, think, I yeah. think, I mean, seriously, this is this is really cool because I, I saw this and and I really liked it because, because this is not, you know, these are all movie stars and it was so cool to see a writer there. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Did that Was that really cool for you? Because it was awesome. It was just really cool. I mean, like, <laughs> I couldn't yeah. believe it. Now it was a it was an insert I guess I always say this like it makes it less whatever but it was sexiest sons right so it was me Faye Dunaway's son Deepak Chopra's son also I should add it was a long time ago <laughs> it didn't happen last <laughs> week like I'm forty I'm not, it's like nothing wrong with being forty but I was like fresh faced and in my twenties when I got that title it was it was interesting that it was that a writer was included and I think I'm always in a state of mild despair over the amount of attention that books don't get that I think they should mm-hmm. and and the attitude that people in media have about them. So, yeah, it was a lot of fun, but it was part of a, a whirlwind experience around the publication of my first book. I just was not ready for the amount of attention it was going to get. I just didn't, you know, and it wasn't right. really, I mean, some, most of it wasn't about the book. It was just about being Anne Rice's son, and I, I was keenly aware of that at the time, but I went on the ride, and what a ride it was. And I think the most, the most part of it I'll never forget was flying to New York to be photographed by David LaChapelle, who used to be a much bigger deal than he is now. I mean, he was the, the celebrity photographer and would do these elaborate shoots with costumes and all this sort of stuff. And, and I went and got photographed by him on the rooftop of his building and they they had this idea Uh-oh. because I was a writer, getting back to the idea that I was not – they thought I was going to be this sort of homely person who was going to show up. And so they were going to put me in a suit. These, these were like their words, too. It was really weird. Like They basically said, we didn't expect you to be attractive, was what they said when I walked through the door. And I was like, oh, okay, thanks. I don't know how to respond to this. Like, you think all writers are a certain type. So they were just going to have me in a suit, and they were going to make my hand into a werewolf hand with yak hair applied with spirit gum, and I was going to be tearing the suit down the front. Well, when I showed up, this sort of twinky little 20-something blonde kid, they the suit became a tank top, and they oiled me up, and they applied the claw, which took about two hours. They It was, it was individual clumps of yak hair applied with spirit gum, and we did it on the roof of their building. And then that night I went to the launch party for Talk Magazine, which was affiliated with the publisher of my book, and they were – going to be the new Vanity Fair at the time and they had a launch party on Liberty Island with fireworks and Madonna and Henry Kissinger. I mean it was just I couldn't believe wow. that this was my life. I wasn't all that grateful or right. appreciative at the time and I was spent most of it really drunk but 
I get it now. <laughs> like I look back on it now, and I think, my God, what a, what an amazing experience that was. Um, right, right. So yeah, it was great. Oh, All right. Wonderful. Also, before we let you go, yeah, it is. It really is. I I just think it. I just thought it was cool as hell. So you know, you can wear that. You can ride that way forever. I was the sexiest oh, yes. man alive. People magazine. <laughs> right. I'm yeah. never going out of my bio. Never. <laughs> right. I wouldn't yeah. either. Uh, we have a few more minutes left, and one thing that I that I definitely want to ask you about is uh, the dinner party show with Christopher Rice and Eric Shaw Quinn. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, you know, the dinner, we uh, stopped producing new episodes for a while because we both started working on the Vampire Chronicles very busily. Um, we had transitioned over to being a YouTube channel, and that was fun, but we are... Uh, we still have our studio here in West Hollywood, and I think we are going to begin recording some things in our studio again very soon and experimenting with that. It was a fascinating journey because when we started out, we were determined to be a live Internet show, much like you guys are with Blog Talk, but we had our own feed in our own studio, and and we did not want to be a podcast. And everybody was talking about podcasts, and podcasts were becoming the thing, and we were like, we're live. We want people to listen to us live. And we became yeah. a podcast. Right. So, um, <laughs> so we, we recorded it live, and that uh, gives uh-huh. it a certain kind of feel. But it's wonderfully fun, and you can download and stream all of our yeah. entire archive. is up at um, thedinnerpartyshow.com or tdps.tv. And I learned so much about putting on a show and producing and working with people who are not imaginary. It was very educational. And uh, <laughs> You know, and we'll see. But it was a it was a big yeah. passion project and a labor of love. And I think when the Vampire Chronicles really took off, we had to shift our focus onto that. But we have not abandoned it, and it's all still there. And and uh, I think we're going to find another life form for it very soon. Oh, great! All right, nice. It's a yeah. great show. We've listened to several episodes, and it's it's good times. Mm-hmm. You guys are you guys are fun. Yeah. a lot of fun. Thank you so much. It was a lot of fun to do. Yeah. All right, so yeah. before we let you go, could you tell our listeners mm-hmm. where they can find out more about you and what you do? Well, I am unavoidable on social media. I am at um, <laughs> Twitter. I'm Chris Rice Writer. On Instagram, I'm Christopher. Dot. Am I on Instagram? I'm going to check that right now. Let's see what I am on Instagram. <laughs> I think it's Christopher. Dot Rice. Dot Writer. And on Facebook, I'm. Something. I'm. <laughs> I've got a blue check mark. I'll say that much on Facebook. I think it's Christopher Rice writer on Facebook too. Um, and I kind of do different things on each platform. I don't just do the same post in three different places. I, I'm kind of a social yeah. media addict. So there's that, and then there's my website, ChristopherRiceBooks.com, which has all the latest information. And um, yeah, that's where you can find me. Great. All right. Yeah, we have had a blast. We always love having you. And again, you're welcome back mm-hmm. anytime. So we're going to keep our eye on you. When you have something new coming out, we're going to get it again. So you <laughs> thank you so much. Now, we do that. Absolutely. <laughs> right. Another week That's from now, so I may have you know written another book. Right? Who knows? Right. <laughs> and if you'd like to come on and announce your news, you're welcome to too. Oh uh, yeah, I'm, I will. I will definitely take that into consideration. Yes. Okay. Absolutely. Wow. All right. Um, all right. So thank you for being on. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And until next week, we wish you haunted nights and sweet screams.
Thank you for joining us. Nice. Haunted Nights, live with Tamara Thorne and Alistair Cross.